Yo, welcome back to Stories Between Us. Yo, we were having us a ball laughing just now. I like legit like recorded the intro. How many times did I do that just now? I just recorded the intro like maybe four or five seven. times. But seven <laughs> times, eight times. I was like, we're the ordinary place. We're the ordinary people. I was like, John, what, who's that? Who, whose song is that? We're just ordinary people. John Legend. John Legend. John Legend. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we, welcome back to Stories Between Us. We are the, now I got to say it real soft. We are the place where ordinary stories intersect in extraordinary ways, you know, so that one day uh, that, uh, you know, for all of us, a better story may be told. And, you know, in this moment that we're existing in, we need better stories. We need uh, stories of hope. We need stories of love. We need stories of healing. We need stories of faith. We need stories that's funny, stories that's sad, stories that's moving, stories that shape us and shake us. And today, we are joined by one of my favorite uh, storytellers that's doing some amazing work in this moment. We're joined today by Cole Arthur Riley. So, Cole, Cole, she, let's go. So, a little <laughs> bit about Cole. You know, Cole, Cole, how did we connect? Like, like I don't even know. Like, like how did we connect? I think I followed you on Instagram. Yeah, I, I don't that... know. Might be. I, I'm, I don't know. I might have followed you before. I don't know. Because <laughs> I mean, your content is hitting. I mean, it is amazing. Amazing. Thank you. Amazing. Amazing. So the, the dope part about Cole, you know, so Cole is um, uh, the, the is 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 a producer of, and curator of content uh, for spiritual formation at the Center for Christian Studies at the Cornell University. Um, she's working with students and faculty to create just incredible content. Um, I mean. Like, yo, if you are not following Cole, uh, follow Cole right now. Like, stop this episode and <laughs> come back to it now. Come back. Yeah, yeah. come back to stop it. Stop this <laughs> Stop this episode and go to Instagram and follow her at Black Liturgies. Uh, uh, and it's just amazing content. So how you doing, Cole? How's everything? I'm doing good. Doing pretty good. Glad to be here. It's a very kind introduction. <laughs> Your content overall is so insightful and thought-provoking. Um, and I honestly did not know that the page even existed until one day Dante posted one thing and then could not stop reposting your stuff. <laughs> and that's real. Like yeah. legit. Like legit. 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 And then he sent me, um, he sent me one of them uh, as a text, and I was like, "Oh, this is serious." When Dante <laughs> texts me something like, it, like the day that we got recorded, <laughs> something is going on. <laughs> something hey, is so serious. Real. Yeah, I mean, we talk like normally, right? We have a we have a good a good friendship, but yeah. <laughs> Whenever he sends me like a book, an article, or something that he read to for me to read to, I was like, "Oh, this means something. This is it." <laughs> that's real. That's real. And so, Cole, I'm so interested. Like, I guess that's even a good place for us to start. Um, uh, you know, I heard it said that if you want to understand who you will become. You know, you can go back to your childhood. I think it was Parker Palmer in the book, Let Your Life Speak, um, listening to the voice of vocation. He wrote that uh, a particular uh, line. So I'm interested in black liturgies, yes, but I want to think about your story, about Cole's story. What are those defining moments in your life, your personal life, that help you understand who you are today in this very moment? Yeah, um, I love this question. So to understand Cole and childhood Cole even, it, you would need to know that I, I never knew my biological dad and my biological mom as a couple. They were 
uh, never married. Um, by the time I was two months, I went to live with my dad. He was a teen dad, um, raising two little girls by himself. Um, shout out to my dad if he's listening. Uh, and hey. <laughs> right. And well, I said by myself, but what I mean with his mom and his siblings and a community, really, and then later on my stepmom. And my dad is mixed. He's black and white. My stepmom's white. So I was operating in a family that that was very mixed, that was very confusing to the outside looking in. And so I had a keen awareness even from the time I was like six or seven of my of my blackness as I've, I've been aware of it. Um, uh, there's a moment that I thought of when you asked this question and um, I was playing this game, this board game with my sister and afterwards we're cleaning up. I, I remember this memory so vividly down to like the smell of pork chops that my stepmom was cooking. Oh my. And uh, we, I went to put away the game and I saw this navy blue hardback book with silver embossed letters on it. And my household, like, we didn't have a whole lot of books, honestly. Um, and we definitely didn't have hardback ones. So, like, I was, like, I remember holding it like it was a Bible, right? <laughs> like, what is this artifact? Wow. And I opened it, and the first page, uh, the first page with print was a poem by my grandmother. Um, and up until that point, I had known that writing and words were a part of me. But it's something about that memory and that moment that, like, just triggered some realization in me that I could actually take my writing and words seriously, that this could happen. Um, so my dad raised us. Uh, we didn't, like, have chores in my household. What we are Basically, our whole existence was chores, and it was just a matter of getting out of those things. It wasn't a time to, like, this is when you're doing chores. So uh, if we wanted to go to the chill at the park with our friends, it was like, okay, yeah, and wipe off the baseboards first or whatever. It's no joke. Um, the only hope we had of, like, not doing things was writing. My dad would come up with these contests for us. He'd make us write. He'd say, I'd give you a word, write a few, write two poems uh, based on this word or write me a short story or um, kind of had me and my sister compete together to win money sometimes and so writing up until that point had all, always been a part of me and I'll always credit my father for that um, and how he formed me but it was something about that moment seeing my grandma's name on page and knowing there are people who are reading and holding this apart from me that was just this kind of transcendent experience that I still look I still think about today um, I could probably recite the poem honestly uh, and it changed me. And uh, so fast forward to college, I was majoring in physics the first few years and I had like started writing as just a hobby. And that moment, uh, well, I'll say the racism and, and white supremacy that I had endured had kind of eroded that moment. And I uh, told myself, I started to tell myself if, you know, if one lit or writing professor tells me that I can do this, that I can like that I should switch majors, I, I will. And it took about three, but I eventually did it and haven't wow. really looked back since uh, knowing that I, I'm always wanting, I'm always going to want to write in some capacity and take it seriously. Yeah. Wow. So Black Liturgies, you asked about Black Liturgies. Uh, that, I honestly did not know that <laughs> was in me to the extent that it was until I started it like I was just chilling in bed one night and I was like mad about a service that I had gone to that just felt like it didn't speak to my present mm. moment I was like mm. telling my husband I think I'm going to start this Instagram account called black liturgies for other black Anglicans who feel out of place right now um mm. and then came to find that much more than black Anglicans and Episcopalians resonated with it um, but in the wake of Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd and the resurfacing of Breonna Taylor and Elijah McClain, I knew that there was something, something in me that I needed to like 
let free, um, to let go free if I was going to cling on to my faith any longer. Wow. So when speaking of, of black liturgies, you, you gave your why as, as to why you created it. But for those of us who don't really know what the true definition of liturgy or liturgies is, can you explain that for us? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll try my best or I'll tell you how I've come (laughs) to think about it. Um, because I didn't ever really consider calling it anything else. Someone asked me like, why didn't you call it black prayers? Um, and I, it took me a while to be able to articulate it. So I'll try, but I think there's something to liturgy that is spoken word and shared word across time and space that I think is really special. Um, but there's also something of liturgy that's just the rhythmed habit, um, of life. Uh, and, and there are now many Christians who would say that like most anything can be a liturgy. Um, I don't really know what I think about that, but I do think that words, um, can and should have a rhythm to it. And, uh, um, when I thought about black liturgies, I thought I, I do want there to be this like daily feel to it that like someone mm. could, I mean, you think about how, I don't want to get into a social media (laughs) rant, but you think about how social media is like deforming us in terms of the habits that we're starting. You know, it's actually terrifying the way our brains have been rewired to like open up Instagram neurotically, um, for lack of a better word. And I was hoping for some kind of dailiness in prayer, some type of daily liturgy that could kind of push a push against that a little bit and enter into it knowing like people are going to open their phones in every, you know, when they wake up first thing in the morning, what could I offer that could be something they can take with them throughout the day? Um, Wow. Yeah. And you know, that's exactly what you've done, honestly. And when you say that, um, that you wanted rhythm in your words, I immediately think of um, Tazaki Shange and for colored girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough um and how that book as many times as i've read it the tens of times that i've read it um it has a rhythm that is seems different every time i read it the words hit different (laughs) Mm -hmm. every time i read it depending on what i'm going through what stage i'm at and um in that the way that this that this moment is going whenever I find myself, especially this year, um, whenever I found myself in a in a tough spot or battling with something mentally um, and spiritually, I find myself looking through that book and and a couple others that are my staples, I guess, of my personality, but that one for sure. And um, the idea of a choreo poem, being mm-hmm. um you know being a true form of literature at the time that she wrote it was not something that was one normal and two even thought about so in that sense in the in the culture of the way that music and literature and society and the current moment come together where do you see um the relevance of that that meeting of of arts I see and how do you use your medium in Instagram um, as a way of creating space hmm that's a really good question um yeah I I I'll start with the end of your question of I I think that I'm trying to um kind of have those things meet in everything from the colors that I've chosen, which are a bit subdued, to the cadence of the liturgies that I'm trying to match what I'm saying, um, as opposed to extract emotion from the cadence and make that be what it is. Um, I've I've tried to like if it's a if it's a liturgy of anger to let the let the tempo of my words embody that um and if it's a a liturgy more geared to lament to let there be 
a slowness and a repetition um almost so i yeah I, i've been writing today and i finished up the chapter in in, in my book and um I, mean, I won't go too much into it just because i haven't kind of went public or whatnot but you know i i narrate you know the story uh with my grandmother and tony morrison you know has this quote that um that that in some sense you know that that the act of imagination uh is bound up with memory and she 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 is narrating this story of remembering and she says that uh whenever the mississippi river uh, is, you know, needs to be drained, they open up the river and it begins to flood. Uh, and she uses this metaphor and says, you know, all all flooding is remembering. The water remember where it comes from, where it's going and where it wants to get back to. And you tell the story of words and your grandmother and you you say this. I just want to read this because it's it's a it's beautiful. You, you you talk about your birthday and you say it it is a memory that clings to me the first time it occurred to me that maybe someday people would read my words too and later that my blackness did not disqualify my word but deepen them mm-hmm. and then oh, i this is just amazing that that you write who am I that my story would be entwined in her word with work with hers I am the stuff of miracle mm. okay work that out for me it, like let's return back there um and talking about you know how words you know you you give out words yes every single day but what words have formed and fed you, you know, that has, you know, allowed you to see yourself as the stuff of miracle? And even what is that even in your mind? What does it even mean, you know, to be the stuff of miracle and why it's so important for each one of us to, in some sense, wake up each day and look at ourselves and say that same proclamation. I am the stuff of miracle. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, hearing you read that took me, took me back to writing it. And yeah, um, I think for me, you know, it begins really with my grandma because I don't know much past that, but she instilled this sense of dignity in my father and his siblings that then my dad, like, just lavished on me and my sister um these kind of rituals of 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 glory of reminding us of our glory um he did our hair every morning um himself and would say you know you look good don't do you feel good you look good do you feel good and like these um these kind of patterns that as they're as you're living them you don't understand what they're doing to you and it sometimes takes takes the path of time for them to be realized in you but it it took a while but I'm there and I think the more I marvel at my grand the story of my grandmother and that she was able going through everything that she's been through was able to find her words in print which was dream of hers the more significant it becomes that now you know 25,000 or um, people are following black liturgies and reading my words daily. Like I, I would not be, if not for her, if not for seeing those words that she'd written. Um, and I would not have an awareness that my words are worth reading. I think anytime you're writing or, I mean, really any kind of art, any, any kind of creating, uh, in a way asserts a level of arrogance you have to believe like what I'm putting out there is worthy to be held by another person and so I'm going to do it um, it's mm. it's not a humble career and I I if if I had not had the voices of you know my dad and, and my grandmother and my my aunts telling me 
of my glory and of my of my gifting um and not shying away from that out of you know any desire to make me falsely humble they they leaned in and and almost had to counter the voices um mm. i do believe that was my dad's strategy of like he was aware of the voices that were forming me in white spaces uh or deforming me in white spaces and every morning sought to build me back up and and you look good do you feel good you know <laughs> every morning mm. had to like restore that that awareness of the miracle in me um mm. yeah Wow, that's amazing, and that's and especially as we're talking about words and writing, like you got me, you got me thinking right now. Like my God, like, like, oh my goodness, like, like in some sense, like every day, your your father was baptizing you in blackness, oh. like, mm -hmm. like, like, like there there was a cer certain type of immersion that was happening, you know. Uh, in, in in religious space, you know, we we like the the baptismal kind of pool represents, particularly in black spaces, uh, the baptismal pool represent the resurrection of dirty water across the Atlantic. Uh, I mean, I need to write about that. Uh, <laughs> what not? It, it represents <laughs> a certain type of reimagination of the water because black people we know water and we don't like water uh, or, or whatnot. Uh, water. <laughs> Uh, you know, is, is representative of a certain type of destruction. Uh, and, I mean, and that's in human life. Water, you know, it's both refresh, refreshing, but water can also ruin you and destroy you. But your dad was like baptizing you in blackness every single day, but also like your life was a constant kind of practice of revision. Mm -hmm. Like, words that you were receiving messaging that you're receiving like even like as you think about that like what what like how do you think about revision in your own life and like you know like even the continual need to be baptized to use that sort of language you know every single day to be reminded uh or, or whatnot yeah hmm i think for me it begins with habits of of kind of right memory of, of you know today today is uh indigenous people's day and uh i was seeing so a lot of good posts i mean this time last year the content was not the same um but a lot of posts that still managed to center christopher columbus and it occurred to me that despite our best efforts, like it is so hard for us to tell a story and celebrate a people without the name of those who have traumatized us, who have colonized us. Um, and I, I, I mean, it, it's just as hard for me as it is for anyone. But I think part of what I am trying to do and will do if I ever have children is to tell stories about them and for them that don't always center our trauma that that start before that that start before you know my ancestors were stolen from their home um that start before their ancestors in chains and my hope is that makes dignity a little harder to believe um on the days and on the occasions where other people try to demean it um, because mm. our grounding is it's it's not originating from that place of of trauma yeah that 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 we existed before that <laughs> and that there's a story worth telling there I don't know if that makes sense but that's part of what it means to me to kind of like cling to that belief and and live it out in a a daily daily way if, if that makes sense no, yeah, it absolutely makes sense. And, you know, you mentioned a, um, a really good point in the fact that um, the names of those who have wronged us are more popular than the names of those who were wronged. And, um, you know, through throughout the past few years, there's been uh, there's been a movement of say his or her name through through every killing that's that's been public and um a lot of people don't get it 
you know a lot of mm-hmm. people don't don't get the fact that um even even recently with with Brianna Taylor how many times and and I'm I'm even guilty of it but how many times did we say the officers mm-hmm. right how many times did we still pay them respect for a position that does not serve us mm-hmm. um how many times did we not say their names Right. Like, I also believe that, unfortunately, there are um, more than more than one. There was actually a protest here at the the day that the um, that the decision came out and there was a sign that says there are Brianna's everywhere. And that's that's all that I'd been thinking about that whole day. Mm. So to think of the fact that, um, unfortunately, this cycle is not going to stop anytime soon unfortunately um to think that and still be in the fight I guess to still be motivated enough to be able to to get up and make brave decisions and write um the way that that you and Dante write in in every day when sometimes honestly to be honest with you I can't even make myself eat, right? So <laughs> That's real. Yeah, That's real. I can't I can't even make myself eat. So how do you how do you make brave decisions every day in mm-hmm. this in this justice work and how do you um make sure that the I don't want to say attention but the attention is going to the right place and not the victims like as you were speaking of with Christopher Mm -hmm. Columbus yeah yeah I mean as you're talking I was just thinking like uh you're right we have systems of story that allow for like you know the the oppressors to be named if they're being celebrated and like have the comfort of anonymity when they should actually be shamed um and it's it's very it's opposite for you know the marginalized um you know so few stories of Breonna Taylor are about her her life and story before these oppressors decided to shoot down shoot through her walls shoot and like so we have so little stories that are able to hold that so um yeah, I'll I'll leave that there. But as far as making brave decisions daily, um, it's hard. I think to do it, you um, have to have a lot of self forgiveness and um, a lot of a lot of people around you reminding you that you're not enslaved to to the work, to any one way of living, um, to any one way of living bravely. If I decide um, one morning to wake up and stop writing Black liturgies, I have a community around me that will say, yes, okay, let's talk about that. And if that's the decision you know, I make, I won't make it in a vacuum, but I will make it with people who will then challenge me to say, well, what else will you do? And like, how else will you use your giftings? And I think sometimes the hard part is feeling like you're chained to some way of responding to and that that's always going to be your way <laughs> and that should be your your days daily and you know m- people like Dante and I m- maybe it is more of our writing but um I think it can look many ways I think it's really hard to be courageous alone um truly alone I mean you don't need to have people necessarily in physical proximity to you but to have a sense of belonging that is so rooted that you know what you would lose by speaking up and doing the right thing um, pales in comparison to the belonging you have to the people who care about you and share your values. Um, I think it's really hard for people who are recently alienated from, you know, from white conservative Trump supporting congregations to then be expected to be super courageous on a daily basis before they're able to reground themselves in a community that's been healing and restorative. Mm. Um, that's a word and for me that that's it. That's what, that's what holds me. Mm-hmm. 
That's a word. That's a word. Especially, you know, as I've gone through that space, you know, through 2016 and um, well, really from, from from 2013, 2014, all the way to 2018, you know, I was in that space. I was in majority white spaces. And, you know, you say something, it's, it's very, like, that's so perceptive that it's very, it's almost spiritually abusive and emotionally abusive to expect us to be courageous when we have been through so much trauma and to simply exist, especially in Christian space, is mm-hmm. to be re-traumatized continually each and every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, this is, and in some sense, that's why I think it's so, it's so powerful, you know, about, about what you are doing in this moment. Um, and even as we think about this moment, what, what, why black liturgies right now? Mm-hmm. I think you said you were angry and you needed, like you needed words. Mm-hmm. So like Bell Hooks in her excellent, um, it was a uh, excellent uh, essay uh, called Choosing the Margin as a Space of Radical Openness. Uh, she writes that language is a place, place of struggle. Um, to dialogue is a gesture of love and a gesture of remembering. So like, I, like even as you are needing words, like what words, you know, you talk about your grandmother's words, you talk about mm-hmm. your own words, like, but how are those words that you're doing day in and out helping you gesture loving, you know, gesture loving people, but also mm-hmm. remembering, particularly in this year and in this moment. I'm so interested in that. Yeah, I think if I were not to, how do I say this? Of like, the, the if I would have let them, the words that I had stay in me, I I think it would have only been death to me. I think you reach a point where the words grow so loud that to not speak them, to not, you know, put them out there for some of us, um, it, yeah, it just, it brings more, more death. Um, I, when you ask like, why, why now? (laughs) What about this moment? It, um, had everything to do with, you know, the murders of Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd, Breonna Taylor and Elijah McClain. And it had everything to do with the condition of my own soul and me coming to an awareness of, I will not make it in the faith if I do not start writing these, <laughs> if I do not make space for blackness in liturgy, I I, I will not survive. Um, mm. And mm. I hadn't reached that point before. And I think with the protests and the racial reckoning, like as people of color, we know, like none of it's new to us, right? Um, what's new is so many people observing it. And um, I was telling someone, I was telling some students that it actually like is like when you fall and you get cut, but it doesn't really start to hurt. At, well, it starts to hurt a lot more when you look at it and then you like see, <laughs> you see it and then you're like, oh, that really hurts. I, I don't know if I'm explaining it the best way, mm-hmm. but there's something about the observation of a pain when you trip privately and trip in public that um, that amplifies it. And it's amplified, you know, millions of times over as people are paying attention to um, black people being murdered by the people sworn to protect them. And so the cry inside just became deafening. And I was like, I'm, I'm not going to make it in the faith. I can't sit through another Sunday um, at, without these words being read. And I thought, I wonder how many other people are feeling this, um, knowing that young people are, you know, are leaving, leaving the church um, and are leaving liturgical spaces. Uh, there's also some something to be said for liturgy gaining traction, but knowing mm-hmm. that my you know gesture of love was this offering was to say, I I will make space every morning, knowing that what my you know I shouldn't say names, knowing that what um someone who I love if if, if their only 
understanding of the faith and their only grounding in the faith is coming from white words, knowing what that is, that's costing them and committing to offering something that could counter that. Yeah, that's so good. And you know, the, um, the analogy you were talking about earlier, it reminded me of an analogy um, in cartoons that we see all the time, uh, where the person, animal, whomever, walks off of a cliff, and then they don't notice that they're on the cliff, and it has that, like, pause, and as soon as they look down, then they mm-hmm. fall. And, um, you know, I was actually talking about this a few months ago. I'm not even sure how it came up, but I was talking talking about it more of like in the spoof, like very cartoony way. Like, that's funny. Why didn't they ever, you know, just have them fall like naturally, realistically. Mm-hmm. But the fact of the matter is, is that um, it always happens that way. Right. Like you just keep going and going and going. And then once you happen to look down, you're above a pit and Mm -hmm. um in that outside of the cartoon realm (laughs) in real life (laughs) realm there has to be a decision made you know to whether fall into it or not and um keep keep going and in a sense that analogy also makes me think of faith whether that be um a faith in yourself a faith in the people that you love or a higher faith um there's, you know, the uh, the scripture that says walk by faith and not by sight. And mm-hmm. in a sense, that cartoon analogy makes me think a lot about that as well. Yeah. Like the fact that they could have kept going without really looking down, just believing that the other end was there um, is mm-hmm. resonating and powerful to me. And in that same sense, how do you feel that you mentioned your students and um how do you feel that your that your students will be able to, I guess, keep going? Yeah, in some ways, um, I'm not sure that they are. I think college students, mm. they exist in this kind of grind culture narrative and a very achievement-centered, yeah, season of life. Um, and in some ways that's done, you know, great things for <laughs> the marginalized throughout history because we know that a lot of activism stems from college campuses and that's so good. Um, but my worry for the students I work with and young people in general is our inability to be still and rest. And when I think about what's going to keep us going, it will be the fact that we have um, commitments and and ordered times of resting and um and play and and I'm not I'm not sure we're there yet I think I I thought when we started when the pandemic Mm. began I thought you know this is great this will be this season where everyone will slow down and you know we're finding that that really hasn't happened that things have actually only increased Mm -hmm. because Students haven't, Mm. students, young people, all of us, we haven't been trained well, informed well to actually say no to anything. So now we have no reason to say no. Uh, People Mm. feel like they have constant access to us because if we have a device. um, And so there's this speed and and busyness and, you know, we won't relent mentality that, um, that, that, yeah, I'm, I'm not unconcerned. I'm not unconcerned with. So I knew that in doing black liturgies and in talking to my friends and family that like rest was going to be centered for me um, during this time. Yeah, yeah that's so real. Um, and, and, and there's a, actually a really good, um, uh, another great um, uh, space, the Nat Ministry. Um, yes. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Just she's so good. I mean, oh, amazing. Just in some sense I love this idea that our weary and wounded bodies deserve rest. Um mm-hmm. you know I, I was writing I was writing this line um uh, as I was as I was doing some writing as I was thinking on you know just the trauma and how Bessel van der Kolk would say 
the psychologists would say that the body keeps the score. And if there is anything um, that that kind of characterizes this moment, this time that we're in, it's that we are so used to seeing dead black bodies mm-hmm. that we have not seen wounded black bodies nor have we seen restless black bodies. And it's like right now, you know, it's, it's, it's in some sense, and that's not just for black folk, it's for everybody. It's, we're so used to seeing dead bodies, even with COVID. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, we're missing wounded bodies that, that are, you know, food insecure. Those who are incarcerated, those who are restless in this moment, who are essential workers. And, you know, one of the things I thought I think is critical, you know, as I think about, you know, loving ourselves deeply, because I believe that that is a legitimate call that Mm -hmm. that that a that to rest. Yes, is a gesture of love to remember. Yes, is a gesture of love. But it's also true that us trying to figure out ways of creating conditions where rest can be possible. Mm-hmm. Where one does not have to be remembered, but one can be loved. Yeah. Not remembered through a hashtag, not remembered through simply saying one's name, but you know, a a a a, a kind of social, religious, and political structure that one can be free, one can be human. And I and I think a lot of times, like like you said, that students, you know, in, in the kind of grind, grind culture, grind space, I mean it. I don't even know if like I don't even I don't even know like if students or even us as young people have been given the tools to understand what rest can even look like. Mm-hmm. So I'm interested. Yeah. Like, what is rest? I, in some sense, for each one of us, what is like if you are to give us a picture of that space of rest for yourself? What does that look like for each one of us? Mm-hmm. I think that may be helpful. I want to kind of get practical because we we talk a lot in our podcast about stories, but I do I do want to help us get you know practical, mm-hmm. particularly about our rest, but also about you know how we're sensing beauty uh, that you talk about, Cole. But also you know how are we utilizing our anger? So like mm-hmm. if we think about the intersection of beauty, rest, and anger, like where are we getting rest? How are we using our anger? where we see in beauty. Yeah. Well, I'll start with rest. Um, I think for me, rest means that you are becoming, you're, you're kind of re-meeting your body. You're becoming reconnected with your body. Um, and Ta-Nehisi Coates, he has this um, this quote that I would never remember uh, and do it justice, but he's basically talking about all of the institutions and the phrasings and the conditions and geography of racism. It all falls um, heavily on the body. And I think as we are contending with, um, with injustice, with alienation and, um, and white supremacy, what almost a primary calling must be a protection of the very thing that those systems and people and places are trying to devalue. We have to Mm. protect our bodies. Um, And so for me, it looks like getting back into my body. I do a lot of stretching. I grew up dancing um, and have been, been able to do that again. I do a lot of deep breathing. I'm by nature a very still in my head person. So um, rest for me does have an active kind of energy to it. Um, but also for me, it it's beginning to look like just a rest that's not apologizing for itself, like allowing myself to say I'm going to do this or that or do what my body is saying it needs without apologizing to another person for it that that I would know that um my body is worthy of that and it's as a black woman it is it's very critical um if you want to if you think about about history you know our freedom that freedom of rest was stolen from my ancestors and Mm. 
why should I remain in bondage for something that, that they died for? I refuse. Um, and I, I'll say this, uh, it's unfortunately, it is precisely pastors and activists, those who have the power to help others get free, who so often end up in chains to our cultural idols of productivity and utility, and they give and they give. And I don't know how I can talk about the dignity of all bodies and neglect my own body. Um, mm. I, I, I went for years without eating breakfast. <laughs> I'm not like, uh, I shouldn't go on a breakfast tirade. Um, Modi, I feel you. I went for years. It was not until I married my husband and he could not believe that I was able to forget to eat for an entire day. It, it'd be five o'clock and he'd be like, oh, I, for, I forgot to eat today. Oh, he could same. not wrap his little, his white brain. <laughs> My husband's white. He's okay with it. Um, He's he okay with it. He could not wrap. That But he couldn't wrap his white country brain around like you actually are able to forget your body for an entire day and not Mm. eat and not listen to what it needs. It's like, yeah, I mean, Mm. because in order to survive, I've had to forget my body's my body in places. It's very easy for me to become numb to what it's telling me. I mean, that's survival for for, that's survival for us, you know, I'm not going to blame myself for that, but I'm not going to stay in bondage to it, you know. I've never thought about that. And that's so real, especially in this moment where we are reminded again of ways in which people are trying to breathe. Mm-hmm. Um, not only, you know, are we do we have the metaphor of Derek Chauvin's foot on George Floyd's neck uh, for nearly nine minutes and him screaming for breath, him screaming for that which makes us human, him screaming yeah. for his own body. Yeah. Uh, he was in a fight for his body and his body lost. Mm-hmm. His body was snatched from him. And then if I even if I think about the ways in which bodies, you know, in our country, you know, are being criminalized bodies, how can one find rest when your body is criminalized? Like mm. how can you find rest? when your body uh, is, is, is a body that many people who would say that they love Jesus' body would say that your body deserved to be a crucified body. Mm-hmm. Like, like yeah. what does that mean, you know, for the body not to be able to breathe because uh, the failures of a country to do the right thing, to protect your body uh, 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 from this disease or once you get this disease to give your body the most necessary care possible to survive and to, and to breathe and to rest. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, yeah, that joint, like, like, yeah, that joint, Modi, that joint hit me. Like for so long, you know, we've had to forget our bodies and, and I, I my man, we could have like, yo, we could have talked, like we can talk about that. Like for a long, for so long, especially for black women, like, Mm-hmm. Black women in our country not only have have redeemed us and saved us, but they have forgot themselves so that we can be human. Wow. And that was like the whole that was like that's that's been the whole struggle of black men in this country as we exist kind of at that, you know, intersection of our black male bodies, our black boy bodies uh, and what bell hooks would call the white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. Uh, that mm-hmm. just sounds so good, but it's so terrifying mm-hmm. uh, because the one who has given us so much to gain has lost so much in the process. Yeah. And I think about black women in this moment, like like black mothers who can't breathe. Mm-hmm. Like Black essential workers who can't breathe. Yeah. Mothers, Hispanic mothers in the fields working for our fruits can't breathe. Like mm-hmm. their babies separated from them can't breathe. Mothers locked up and incarcerated can't breathe. 
I just, oh my goodness, I just, I just dream of a day where like we can create a world where we can collectively just say, mm-hmm. yeah, like I'm dreaming. Me too, man. And I think, well, as I think about that, it's like for those of us who have the agency, you ask like, how do you breathe? How, how do people who are, who are criminalized breathe? Um, how, how do people who aren't welcome breathe? I think for those of us who have the agency, we have to start telling ourselves that sometimes survival looks like leaving. And mm. I, I, I'm sorry to tell all my friends this, like there, there is a such thing as a space require being too costly, requiring too much of you. And if you are existing, if every, every sphere of life is like that, um, how, like, where are you going to breathe? You know, if it's mm. your household, your workplace, your social life, and your like side hustle, if those are all white dominated, oppressive spaces mm. where you can't breathe, like something's got to give and it can look like leaving. Um, and it, yeah, if there's one thing I could tell, uh, a person of color that's listening to this or a sexual minority that's listening to this is if you need to go, go, Jesus did it. He left. He, he knew when he mm. needed to get away and he did it and he didn't apologize for it. And it was for his own survival. Um, and mm. I think sometimes we think that's selfish and black women who have so much pressure put on us to be, you know, strong and to hold everyone together. I think, what the Nat ministry is, the Nat Bishop of the Nat ministry, what she's doing, I think what her voice is saying is really important that she's telling even them, lay down and stop, mm. <laughs> quit mm. it. You mm. do not have to keep saving everyone in every space mm. that you're in. Like sometimes you need to leave. Um, mm. And I, I, I pray for a day that we can all exhale together. But until that moment, I think we just need to start making our departures, you know? Mm. Mm. But that's for those of us who have the privilege to do so. Mm. Right. Mm. That's so good. And that's so real. So, oh my goodness. I Cole, I wish, I wish that we could go longer. Like, and I, I mean, we may need to redo, I mean, re-up on this again just to, <laughs> you know, talk more about this. Because I feel like, in some sense, like a part of me, if I'm being honest, like a part of me wants to get people to talk about, yo, like policy and, you know, politics and convincing uh, uh, people of the destruction of this administration and just the necessity of being engaged. But like a part of me is like a little kid weeping, like trying to cry out and say like, yo, we all need to like, we need to heal. And it's hard in this moment, especially when we come from traditions as we all have, as we each right now have come from traditions that have been forced to give up rest so that we can be human in a social world. For those of us who've been forced to do that, I think it's so necessary to remind ourselves that it is okay to breathe, it is okay mm -hmm. to be, it is okay to be angry, it is okay to have rage, it is okay to be confused. It is okay even to curse somebody out sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, but whatever you do, don't give up the beautiful part of yourself that is called mm -hmm. about every single day. Cole, if you don't mind, I would love for you to close us out with the liturgy that you resonate with that you feel is just incredibly relevant in this moment. Okay. God who left, 
Did you feel worry or guilt as you walked away from desperate crowds? How did you know when to stay and when to go? Would you grant us the courage and discerning wisdom to know when to leave? We say yes and yes again and rise to every occasion, neglecting our selfhood and bodies and silencing our inner voice which cries out a weariness of soul. Release us from that bondage of mind which says others are entitled to our time, our thoughts, our bodies. Remind us that you call us to die to self, and that means our old selves which seek love, affirmation, and security by doing and giving much more than what we are meant for. And that you then call us to live in the freedom and life you have spoken over us. Let us waltz away from the demands of this world, singing, we won't be owned. We won't be owned. <laughs> Co-author Riley, the founder, amazing, amazing content producer of Black Liturgies. We're so happy that y'all joined us once again for another round of storytelling. We hope that y'all are enjoying these stories, um, that you feel heard, but most of all, that you feel seen. That's, that's why we tell stories. We tell stories because we feel seen, and that's what we want for you. And so do us a favor. You know, share this with somebody and invite them to story time and storytelling with us as well. I'm Stu. And I'm Modi. And we are 